Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The G7 presses China to put real pressure on Putin to stop the Ukraine war. The Group of Seven also says Taiwan has to be kept peaceful, underlining fears of Chinese military aggression. This sounds like the rhetoric coming from the geopolitical echo chamber. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a peace activist, a writer, and a teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So the report is the U.S., the EU, and the other group of seven wealthy democracies on Saturday called on Beijing to resolutely urge Russia to stop the war in Ukraine, adding to previous warnings against economic or military assistance for the Ukraine. KJ, this sounds like the EU is projecting its own responsibilities in this conflict onto China. The the EU and the group of other seven wealthy democracies, I think they need to really look inward and get out of this echo chamber because this to me sounds like a lot of people from Harvard who think they're the smartest people in the room because they tend to be the only people in the room talking to themselves. Yes, you're absolutely correct. It's complete and total, not only groupthink, but projection. And I would also, to get biblical on you, I would mention something about removing the beam from your own eye <laughs> before the, the moat in you know your the other person's eye. Uh, you know, the simple fact is that <clears throat> it is uh, the EU and NATO which is pumping weapons and aid to prolong the war. And so for them to call on any other country to, uh, to stop the war is hypocrisy. Uh, but essentially, we understand that, you know, this is a proxy war. It's a proxy war between the U.S. and NATO against Russia. And NATO is putting on the garment of pretending to be a referee that's saying, don't fight, be fair, don't fight. And all parties, you know, stop encouraging the fighting. But as we know, as is obviously clear, uh, is that the U.S. and NATO are parties to the war. That's why they say that their goal is to weaken Russia. And so for them to talk about Beijing or any other country uh, you know, uh, urging them to put pressure to stop the war. It's, you know, it's an absurdity. And uh, the other point that I'll make is, you know, 160 other countries are refusing to go along with uh, this, you know, NATO-led sanction. And so for them to single out China amongst 160 other countries, once again, speaks to the China-bashing uh, rhetoric, which is the key agenda in this statement. 
You know, the other thing, you've got the G7, you've got NATO, you've got all these other groups, which are simply umbrella groups for the United States to bring together all its vassals so it can exercise power of attorney over them, pretending as though they're actually leaders when the reality reality is this, this article in Politico starts off and refers to them as a group of seven wealthy democracies. I don't know if you've been paying attention lately, but they ain't so wealthy anymore. The U.K. is falling to pieces. People are in the streets complaining and griping. They're paying, you know, you know, you're here. We're paying six or seven dollars a gallon for gas. So they were refer- foraging in the wood it, for wood. Literally in <laughs> Poland and Latvia, they're wandering the woods to keep warm, to find branches and trees. They've gone back to the hunter gatherer days and they're still arguing. They have no. Um, no one looks at them and says, yeah, those countries, those are wealthy countries. I want to be like them. They're kind of laughing stocks of the world now. KJ. Well, not only, not only are they not wealthy, not so wealthy democracies, democracies anymore, I would say that they're not even, you know, democracies except the pure, you know, kind of process facade that is putting, that, that's put on, you know, neoliberal capitalist, uh, imperialist states. I mean, the fact is this G7 meeting is happening right now at an elite spa in the Bavarian Alps, Schloss Elmau, which is really the Nazi Esalen. If they think about, you know, the symbolism of that, this is where, you know, the Nazis would gather to pamper themselves. Well, here we have, you know, what a strange coincidence. So they are, you know, giving themselves, you know, massages, you know, putting salt rubs on each other's backs. Uh, and they're pretending to solve the world's problems while they're essentially uh, what they're doing is they're preparing to bash China for the NATO summit. This is a kind of a, a cocktail or a appetizer for the main resistance, the main meal, which will be the NATO uh, summit. And that's where they will come out and really and thoroughly uh, declare hostilities against China, but in a coded way, because that's how they do things. It's interesting in this piece, they say, they report that this EU call came after China failed to echo what French President Macron claimed was a shared goal with Chinese President Xi Jinping regarding a quote-unquote ceasefire in Ukraine. Beijing made no mention of the message after the Tuesday call, while it continued to criticize the West for sending arms to Ukraine. KJ, this sounds as though President Xi is is being and has been very consistent in his messaging. And I guess I don't know if something got crossed up in the translation with Macron or he didn't he didn't he fell asleep during the phone call. But it sounds like he missed something here. I think he did. And, you know, Macron, you know, is is uh, a man who is known for his double speak, his ability to do a kind of two track diplomacy. So my guess, my best guess is that he told the Chinese what they wanted to hear. And then he comes out of that meeting and then he says, uh, you know, to the EU and the G7 what they want to hear. This would be my best guess of what had happened. But the Chinese have been extraordinarily consistent. Uh, They have not changed their tune. Uh, They have uh, asked for consistently that uh, the EU back off of its 
uh, you know, belligerent policies uh, towards Russia, and that all countries should work towards mutual and sustainable security. That is the bottom line. You know, there's another article that I think is of consequence, and it is uh, Politico, and it says, um, actually, no, it's U.S. News, and it says, Biden urges G7 to stay together as leaders target Russian gold and oil prices. And here's the part. I get to it. He urges them to stay together. I am getting the feeling increasingly there's articles today where there were French members of the French parliament are starting to complain that the pain from these Russian sanctions, the pain from being dragged behind the U.S. empire, you know, it's you're tied alongside the Titanic. At some point, things are going to go bad. And it seems to me that President Biden's having to urge people to stay together implies that they're kind of starting to scatter and starting to maybe possibly wise up and look out for their own um, economic needs. KJ. Yes, I think there's a bit of uh, cat herding going on. <laughs> uh, and I think the G7 is an attempt to bring, you know, the seven sheepdogs uh, on the same page and to get them to have all of their political class as well as their people uh, to fall in line. And, you know, clearly the fact that they have to mention this signals that this is not going well. That, as I said, you know, the G7 is a precursor to, uh, it's, you know, it's the appetizer to the, the NATO summit. They're trying to build at least the semblance of consensus uh, before they get to the really hard task of uh, the, the NATO summit. And I think that uh, in this process, of course, they want to blame China. They want to blame China and create unity against China. And of course, they want to blame everything on Russia. Well, you know, there are many causes of, for example, the current inflation we're seeing. There's, of course, cost push inflation, but there's demand pull uh, inflation, which is related to post-COVID surge in demand. And of course, let's not forget the effect of the sanctions themselves, which are causing, you know, the incredible shortages, as well as the massive QE, the massive, uh, you know, quantitative easing that has uh, pushed inflation. So a lot of mendacity and a lot of misdirection going on at the current moment. It's interesting. I I just noticed this in the political piece. G7 unveils $600 billion plan to combat China's Belt and Road. They're all sitting around this table wearing white shirts, and Joe Biden is the only one sitting there with a blue shirt on. I don't know if he didn't get the memo. Uh, The world's wealthiest democracies announced a $600 billion global infrastructure initiative to counter China's push to exert political and commercial influence through massive investments across emerging economies. KJ, this this is not an army rolling across the tundra, raping and pillaging. This is is economics. This is manufacturing. This is is, uh, capitalism. This this is what these people are supposed to be about. This is what their countries were were built on. And, you know, we've said this before. It seems as though they're now blaming China for taking advantage of their decisions to de-industrialize their own economies. KJ. You're absolutely absolutely correct. I mean, you know, just kind of to go back to basics, uh, you know, the relationship between the Western core 
uh, and the southern periphery is that between the parasite and the host. Now, the parasite has to continually suck in wealth from the periphery in order to maintain its standard of living and its, uh, you know, uh, uh, economic hegemony. Now, Western, quote unquote, investment traditionally to the global south has always had political meddling involved, but it's always been about austerity and privatization. That is, when a poor country, a third world country, a developing country needs, uh, needs uh, capital, it takes its pound of flesh. And that pound of flesh is usually through austerity and asset stripping, privatization, as well as resource uh, extraction. It's a parasitic model of uh, quote unquote uh, economic aid. What the Chinese have been doing over uh, the past decade or so through the Belt and Road is that they have been doing infrastructure development. In other words, it's asset development. Mm-hmm. You take out a debt, but you build your own assets as you do that. And as a result, this has been tremendously successful. There are 146 countries involved in the Belt and Road. Uh, some of them have had some you know, economic struggles. So China has written off the debts for 51 countries uh, or restructured their loans. And the total amount of the Belt and Road is somewhere between uh, 1.3 trillion and 4 trillion. We estimate currently at the current moment, there are about $2 trillion worth of projects happening right now, which are directly Belt and Road. And that dwarfs the amount for the Partnership for Global Infrastructure, which we still haven't seen the money yet. KJ No, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The NATO summit kicks off in Spain. The increase of forces aid to Ukraine and the bloc's further expansion are on the agenda. This while, NATO number one threat to global peace, says French politician. It is stated that NATO considers the EU as a registration office of its members. NATO is the biggest threat to global peace since it is pushing the European Union toward confrontation with Russia and China and is seeking to destroy the buffer zone by forcing neutral states to take sides in this confrontation. This is according to a French member of the European Parliament, Hervé Juven, a member of the European Parliament's Subcommittee on Security and Defense. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, Ray McGovern. As always, Ray, welcome back. You're most welcome. So your thoughts, first of all, to this statement, and I think it's important for people not only to pay attention to the statement, but who actually stated it that NATO is a threat to global peace? The, uh, the French have some educated 
parliamentarians. This is one of them. Uh, he cuts to the chase and he points out that, you know, let, letting Ukraine into the EU is normally a preparatory stuff to letting it join NATO. Uh, there's very, very few differences between NATO and the EU. Uh, the Russians uh, do make a distinction. They say the EU, no problem, because that's not a military alliance. NATO, big, big problem. And the Russians pretty much threw down the gauntlet today. Um, their uh, former president, and now he's deputy chairman of the uh, National Security Council there in Moscow, his name is Medvedev. You may remember him. Mm -hmm. And he made a really tough statement. Uh, he's been sort of the bad cop in all of this. And he's talking about Ukraine and specifically Crimea. And what he says is this, and I checked the Russian on this, uh, and it's exact, it, it, the translation is good. Quote, any attempt to encroach on Crimea is a declaration of war on our country. And if this is done by a NATO member country, this is a conflict with the entire NATO alliance. Third world war. Totalnaya katastrofa, okay? Total catastrophe. Oh, now that's rhetoric. What are the Russians doing to reinforce that gauntlet that Medvedev threw down? Well, there was a stage meeting between Putin and the head of uh, Belarus, and uh, <laughs> watched in some wonder. And uh, it was all orchestrated so that uh, the head of uh, Belarus says to uh, Putin, you know, uh, we, need, we need more arms to defend ourselves now that we've gone out on a limb to support you. What do you say there, Vladimir? And Vladimir, Vladimirovich Putin says, yep, you know, uh, we talked about this. We're going to give you some nuclear capable missiles to defend yourselves. Now, we need to you know, kind of train you all in, in Russia. We're going to do that. And it'll be months before, before we're ready, but we're going to do that. Whoa. Nuclear-capable missiles. That's a first. They have a range of about 300 miles, as I understand it, this particular model. Uh, that's not going to happen uh, without causing all kinds of <laughs> all kinds of problems with the uh, NATO folks. NATO folks began their meeting today. Uh, suffice it for, for me to say at this point that I was about to write an article uh, saying, well, you know, um, uh, 30 blind mice is not a prescription for, for sensible policymaking, in, including China in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization Defense Military Alliance doesn't make a lot of sense unless you're baiting China, unless you're just thumbing your nose at China's realistic offer, in my view, for a win-win solution to this competition, not a, you know, not a total win by the West. That's no longer possible. And just to continue as a conf con confrontation rather than a competition uh, spells ill for all of us in the West. 
You know, one of the things that they're having problems is uh, there are countries in the a number of countries in the uh, such as Germany in um, Europe that have significant economic ties to China, as does the United States, but they're smart enough to recognize that they don't want to blow that to pieces. And the U.S. is grabbing these people and dragging them into a confrontation with Russia, and we certainly see cracks forming there. And at the same time, as this falls apart and as economic disaster is set to befall all of the U.S.'s vassals or allies or whatever you want to call them in Europe, Europe, at the same time, they're saying, okay, that didn't work out so well and it's fallen apart. I know. Let's go after the big tiger over here. You know, let's go over the dragon now that this is falling apart. I would imagine there are a lot more cracks in Europe. There are a lot more people seeing what this French politician said than we hear above board, um, Ray. And you've dealt in this area a lot. What are your thoughts? Well, I think you're correct. Uh, the people in NATO are in la-la lands. Uh, why, would you, why would you confront the two most powerful countries in the world, aside from the United States, together. Why would you drive them together? It's been a whole year since Biden finally realized that Russia and China are united. They have, a, they have an alliance that won't quit. And before that, as he told the reporters after his summit with Putin on the 16th of June, just a year ago, you know, he said, you know, oh, Russia's got a big problem because it's being squeezed by China. China is threatening it. It's got a long border. China's going to be a military. Oh, I feel sorry for Putin. It's it's really a big squeeze. Well, nothing could have been further from the truth. And the rest of that year, last year, 2021, was spent with Xi, President Xi of China, and Putin trying to show that they were really together. Now, this summit uh, in NATO is including uh, people from the Far East. You know, I don't think the Atlantic goes anywhere near Japan or South Korea. And it's all gratuitous. It's all a slap at China because China is now being considered a, quote, systemic challenge, Mm -hmm. end quote. Well, yeah, I won't even try to parse what that means, but it simply means that they were taking them, taking both of them on, and I find myself uh, reluctantly agreeing with Henry Kissinger. He had it exactly right. This is, <laughs> well, it's crazy, but it's also a total catastrophe. Why? Because Russia is winning in Ukraine, because the economic sanctions are doing havoc in Western Europe. And because President Xi of China is sticking with his pal Putin, it's going to come to what the Chinese used to call a no good end. You know, you posed earlier the question about NATO dealing with China and I guess how can China be brought into the North Atlantic? Well, I guess if Egypt can be taken out of Africa and put in the Middle East, you can put China anywhere you want to. The NATO summit to your point, NATO is is labeling China as a systemic challenge. And also Secretary General Stoltenberg said yesterday that NATO is going to increase the number of its rapid response troops from nearly from roughly 40,000 to 300,000. And he labeled Russia the most significant and direct threat. 
I'm going to use a, a very simplistic analogy here. If this is not the perfect example of continuing to swat the hornet's nest, I don't know what is. I guess I shouldn't be shocked, but the utter stupidity behind all of this just continues to amaze me. Y'all keep slapping the dragon and poking the bear. And to what end? Well, there are people profiteering on this, of course, as you all well know. Uh, the Raytheons, the Lockheeds, the Boeings of this world, uh, you know, <laughs> if I were less principled, <laughs> I, would, I would start investing. Uh, they're having a field day. And that lies at the core of a lot of this. I mean, it's it's hard to believe that the military industrial complex can be this strong. But who profiteers? Who profits on uh, on tensions both with China and with Russia? As far as NATO's uh, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is concerned, my God, you know, uh, the U.S. chooses these these folks often from no, uh, from Nordic places. I remember right before the attack, the unprovoked attack by the U.S. and the U.K. on Iraq. Uh, there was a say, NATO secretary general named Rasmussen from mm -hmm. Denmark. Mm -hmm. And he mm -hmm. stated just a week before the attack, it's not that we think there are WMD, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We know they're there. Okay. <laughs> now, that's what the U.S., of course, was spreading around. It was totally false. But what I'm saying here is that when you hear Stoltenberg or any of these Doltenbergs talk, they're simply mouthpieces for the U.S. Uh, my wonderment comes uh, from the fact that 77 years after the close of World War II, these people are still acting like vassals or like, in NATO's case, 30 blind mice. Yeah. Uh, yes. And uh, uh, the other thing I think is of, of that 300,000, if you look at the direction things are going economically, which is pretty much straight down, how are they going to afford 300,000 people along with the commensurate equipment and military and all that kind of stuff at a time when, I mean, the UK, the, the lawyers are now going to strike. Well, let me tell you, when you're in a society that lawyers are striking, you're in deep and serious trouble. Uh, 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 Ray. Well, these 300,000 troops, of course, are going to defend NATO, right? Oh, it's terrific. Is Russia threatening NATO in any case? Nope. No. There was this codicil. There is this sort of corollary. The warning by Medvedev just today that remember, Crimea is part of Russia, okay? So if anybody messes around in Crimea, like some of these crazy Ukrainians might be tempted to do right now, we will consider that a, a challenge from, from NATO, even though uh, Crimea is uh, even though Ukraine is not yet in NATO, it aspires to be NATO. So these are these are strong warnings. And I have not seen the Russians or the Soviets, for that matter, be so open in their disdain for what's going on. And as I always say, uh, the big reason that Putin feels so strong is because he had a great big brother named Xi Jinping from China. Xi is supporting him up and down. As a matter of fact, the Chinese have, have changed their fundamental foreign policy 
stance that was always sovereignty, territorial integrity, non-interference in the affairs of other people. Well, they've given Putin a waiver on all that. And what they say now in their in their rhetoric is we judge everything on its own merits. Okay, and they apply that specifically to Mm -hmm. Ukraine. Uh, If the well, the West should recognize this. And that's why I I, am not happy, but I'm I'm calling the 30 uh, folks gathering in in uh, in Brussels this week for the NATO summit, uh, 30 blind mice, if they think that. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken knows what's going on or that the president of the United States does. They didn't last year Mm -hmm. at that summit Mm -hmm. between Biden and Putin, and they don't this year when they're going (laughs) to include China in some way as a, what do they call it, a systemic challenge. Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. You're most welcome. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Frustration and anger is rising among Democrats over caution on abortion. A growing number of Democrats are voicing anger at what they see as the passivity of President Biden and other party leaders in the face of hard-hitting Republican tactics on abortion and other issues. It's interesting to me that it takes this decision for Democrats to get up in arms. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's the principal and founder of TML Communications, a leading public relations communications and advocacy firm in Pennsylvania, Teresa Lundy. As always, Teresa, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Good to be with you guys. So I'm going to read two paragraphs from a a piece in the Washington Post. Just hours after the Supreme Court decision ending 50 years of abortion rights, President Biden outlined his ideal response, elect more Democrats. This fall, Roe is on the ballot, Biden said at the White House. Personal freedoms are on the ballot. The right to privacy, liberty, equality, they are all on the ballot. A short distance away, House Democrats gathered on the steps of the U.S. Capitol to sing a heartfelt rendition of God Bless America to celebrate the passage of a modest gun control bill, a moment that felt tone deaf to many Democrats given the judicial bombshell that had just landed. Teresa, this really seems to be a few days late and a lot of dollars short. The cake was baked when on the row issue when the court took the case. So help me out. I mean, you, you have greater insight into, into this than I do. The Democrats seem to be really tone deaf on this thing. I think it's two parts to this. I think one is the tone deaf. Democrats did not show up the way they should have. Um, I think there were too many strategy meetings where um, there was not a lot of conversations about the appointments that Trump made and the impact it did on the Supreme Court. And it's not even, um, you know, more than two years since uh, he's been out of office. 
we're now still seeing their strategy take place there as in the Republican Party. The next piece outside of being tone deaf is, again, um, the Democrats not allowing themselves to wrap their head around next steps on how to uh, figure out what's the best way to move the American people forward with these type of decisions. There are states that took immediate action uh, in the United States of America regarding the SCOTUS decision. And because of that, we now have, I believe, it's up to 12 states that are banning abortion. The Democrat strategy needs to be very clear that those that are running, because right now I live in the, you know, I live in Philadelphia, but the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is another must-watch race. We may get a Democrat or Republican governor. The Democratic candidate and who the Democratic Party needs to support if they choose to have women's rights and free choice back on the ballot in the in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that governs 67 counties. There has been no strategy. There has been no outreach. I think the party um, has, has really, you know, is just in a shamble right now. And the only folks that seem like they're leading, the only folks that seem like they have a winning strategy is the Republicans. Because I think everyone has been too focused, and I'm talking about the special committee, they've been focused on Donald Trump and, and his past affiliations and thinking that's going to be the, quote, Trump card, no pun intended, but the Trump card that brings down his entire establishment and what he keeps proving time after time, that him and his folks are loyal and this is a witch hunt and the Democrats are falling right into it. Quickly on your point about being in Pennsylvania as it relates to the abortion issue, Pennsylvania is a Catholic state by, by tradition. So does that factor into the politics of abortion? So, yes. I mean, right now the House and the uh, Senate is ruled by a Republican majority. And when you have those two, and, and again, right now it's under a Democratic governor. If that Democratic governor wasn't there vetoing some of these uh, excessive, uh, some uh, what call racist bills, um, then we would be in a, a jeopardy of widespread, widespread attention uh, to some of the issues right now. Because it is, you know, a very conservative state, but again, the pockets, that matter are the ones that have the largest turnout votes. That's Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. Erie County, and France. Okay. Okay. And because of those counties, you will uh, absolutely see that because it's Democratic centered, and thus it 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 has the ability to ensure that the right individuals are being elected, i.e., governor. Since again, the state and um, uh, the Senate is ran by Republican leadership. Let me ask you this, as, as a person who's an independent, and I mean, I'm, a, I'm an independent to the left, way to the left of the Democratic Party, not like in between or to the right of it. So here's my question, because it comes across as the immediate response of Biden came across as kind of self-serving because it was immediately when it happened, he said, Roe is on the ballot. And, and what I thought to myself, well, that's kind of cynical. It's like, hey, vote for us. Vote for us. It, it, I'll be honest. It almost felt I could almost picture Biden and his team in the background high fiving, saying, oh, man. January 6th wasn't working, but I think now we got a way to get the votes. And it comes across very cynical. And my, the question that pops to my mind is this. OK, OK, OK. People have been telling you for many years you need to work on codifying Roe v. Wade. If everybody votes for you and you maintain your majorities, 
What are you going to do different than you do now? What do you, you know, you have to say, vote for us, because if we get in Roe versus Wade and we will do X. Instead, the only thing I hear is Roe is on the ballot, vote for us, and it comes across kind let, of self-serving. Let me give you a historical precedent before Teresa answers. What you just articulated is called Barack Obama. He had the majority in the House, in the Senate, and he had promised to codify Roe v. Wade when he was elected and didn't get it done. So you're not you're not proposing some uh, hypothetical. It's already been there, yeah. <laughs> we've been there, done that and got nothing for it. Teresa. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, kind of to that independent uh, point that you made, Garland, um, it has to be a strategy in order for, you know, we're just saying Roe is on the ballot. I'm not sure people even understand what that means. And, and again, the Democratic Party just seems like they just have a communication issue when it comes to rolling out some of these, you know, fine points that, again, I think once the, the SCOTUS uh, leak decision came out, it should have been action mode. Wasn't even 30 days later until the decision was made. So we should have had talking points. We should have had a strategy. We should have said, Roe is, to your point, Roe is on the ballot, and here's why. And, and some of these uh, governors that are running, well, individuals that are running for governor of their state, they're also either taking a row stance or they're taking a moderate stance. And some of that moderate stance or some of, on the row issue specifically is not really helping their cause because they got to get conservative voters as well. So, you know, we could say it's on the ballot, but at the end of the day, some of the individuals that are running that may have a chance to win the governor's seat is not touting that same message as the party overall, which means they, you know, also have to be very aware. Look, I got to get in myself and I need Republican votes, but I'm not going to say that. So the Democrats need to be very strategic in their messaging. They need to be very aware of the individuals that are running across these states. When we say local elections matter, they need to act like it does. And really put some resources behind it, not just money, but we need those. We need Biden coming to these states. Trump and his team is still making their grand tour. I want us to think about that. That's, that's just a lot going on. I, I want to ask you something, though, uh, uh, about something that you just said. And, and I have a question about that because you said messaging. And I, here's what I think about that, because that's often a discussion, you know, messaging. And here's what I think. I don't think it's messaging for this reason. I think messaging is only this is what I'm going to do. There's a substance behind that message. There's a policy behind that message, right? I don't think the problem is messaging. I think that there is not a coherent policy that you can create a message around. The message says, I'm going to do this and you should trust me for this and that blah, 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 right? And this is how it's going to work. The, the message is an articulation of a strategy. Right. And I think if you don't have a strategy, you ain't got no that's message. Exa that's exactly what I'm saying. Your thoughts. You're absolutely right. Uh, again, uh, messaging, uh, again, is step one to, to the action plan. So if the action isn't ready to, to be executed, then the message is dead on arrival. So we can, like, look, I'm a communications firm. I deliver people messages that they can take and use. But right now, it just doesn't seem like the message is method, uh, creating that, that strategic point of view where the rollout is happening. And thus, I feel like we're in the same mute point of message and lack of policy execution. And thus, 
we're getting so many off the wall responses and zero solutions. You know, you mentioned Donald Trump and the Democrats looking at Trump appointees. I got to take a step further back and go to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Democrats, and Merrick Garland, because she should have been she should have she should have been removed from the bench. They should have convinced her to resign while they still had a Democratic president that would have been able to fill her seat. From what I understand, she was trying to hold on in the assumption that Hillary was going to win. And, of course, we know that didn't happen. And then, two, I don't think the Democrats fought hard enough on the Merrick Garland issue, so they lost seats at—they lost seats— at a point in history before the seats were even available, if that makes sense. Agreed. And um, again, because of the strategy not being in place, uh, this, this is the result. So, I mean, look, I think there are a lot of factors that happened um, prior to Trump that could have made a difference for today's decision. But at the end of the day, you know, we have to look at the titles and the positions that we voted for. What do I mean by that? I mean, we had voted in a president and if we didn't ask him specifically about, you know, some of these issues that are happening today and we're just voting because we wanted to get Trump out. These are some of the results. I'm not blaming the administration, but we do need to take a look at some of the priorities that they did have. Uh, And I think something that should be thought about. And that was and that was one of my big things. Ice Cube prior to the 2020 election, talked about the contract with black America and said, you got to ask for something for your vote. And he got poo-pooed. A lot of people went after Ice Cube. I was one of the people that said, hey, I think it's a good idea. I think looking forward, you know, black voters, black America has to think about, look, you know, we're giving up our vote. And if we want something, people, women, people in period, period that are um, susceptible to bad things like this happening in society have to start looking and saying, look, you know what? I demand something in return, not just liberty and equality is on the, you know, those kind of, you know, grand rhetorical proclamations. Your thoughts? You're absolutely right. I mean, look, hope and change is great. Well, but now we need solutions and action. So <laughs> I'm looking for a candidate that is willing to, you know, execute on those things. And I think everybody else is as well. So people keep saying they're tired of list service. We're tired of people not coming out the boat. Half the battle is you got to make them want to come out. Not just say, you know, I'm just going to run and we're going to do this. Well, how are you going to do it? What are the relationships look like? What is the team that you're putting in place to change some of those issues and concerns that you're having? And once we start taking those type of critical approaches, I think we can start to see real candidates and real leaderships coming uh, across the forefront. That takes me to the Urban Empowerment Action, Political Action Committee, the Urban Empowerment Action PAC, uh, which is a Wall Street-backed super PAC that uh, is funding pro-Israel black Democrats. And they're, uh, they're working to unseed people like Rashida Tlaib in Michigan. I don't understand how a, Israel, a pro-Israel-backed Pack can be empowering African Americans in the urban centers. We got about a minute. Well, you know, I can't be surprised, right? We have, uh, we got the what is it, Emerge 
that is a national Muslim pack, you know, who also say they uh, are, they want to um, help empower black Muslims. So I, I'm not surprised across the board, you know, we've had Jewish packs that really don't say Jewish in the headline, but they are, packer, you know, APAC, right? Mm-hmm. They're focused on Jewish issues. So I'm not surprised, but I would love to see what the strategy looks like, right? What makes you, you know, somebody's religion um, stand out as saying we're going to be progressive? Because look, oh, I can tell you what uh, quickly. I can tell you what the strategy is. Ask Nina Turner because it was it was a similar pack in Ohio that funded the opposition to Nina Turner. Ask uh, uh, Cynthia McKinney in Georgia. It was a similar type of pack that did her in 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 Georgia. We we've seen this play out in our politics. For, for a number of years, and now it really seems to be to be gaining a lot more ground. I got to get out, as always. Teresa Lundy, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate your help. We look forward to having you back. I look forward to being with you guys. Have a great one. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Lee, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a great piece entitled, Since When is Dismantling a Coup d'Etat Dismantling Democracy? Nicaragua journalist Edwin Sanchez writes a heartfelt comparison between what happened on January 6, 2021 in the United States and the U.S.-supported coup attempt of April to July 2018 in Nicaragua. For Insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's the Latin American campaign coordinator for Code Pink, Terry Madsen. As always, Terry, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be back. So this piece opens as follows. Now that the AP reports that members of the House Committee investigating the assault on the U.S. Capitol have additional evidence to be exposed this week that shows that Trump and his advisors conducted a large-scale effort to spread disinformation and pressured the Justice Department to accept the then-president's false assertions, why does the White House not accept that Trump, at the head of the U.S. government, also made large-scale efforts to spread disinformation against the constitutional government of Nicaragua and pressured his related agencies, human rights commissions, OAS, the media, think tanks, and other institutes, foundations, commissions, etc., subordinated under facades of independent bodies to also accept the then-president's false assertions about Nicaragua. And it continues along the same vein. Your thoughts, Terry Matson. Well, the first thought that comes to mind is hypocrisy. And, and we have touched on this theme over and over again on your, pro- on your, pro- on your program um, regarding U.S. foreign policy and how hypocritical it is um, regarding itself versus um, other, other nations. And it's, it's fascinating and sorrowful to see that you know, what is being applied to the January 6th event, uh, January 6th, 2021, in, in Washington, how this is, you know, the United States framing it 
as as an insurrection, uh, an internal domestic insurrection, and yet um, and yet when Nicaragua claimed the same thing in April of 2019, it was completely disregarded by the United States. You know, in Nicaragua, this was they experienced a nationwide violent internal disruption, insurrection, coup. It has many you know, labels, depending on who you talk to, there was no nationwide violent event in the United States. It was isolated, you know, to Washington, D.C., and yet it is being, it's being defined one way in the United States, and the same definition is being used against uh, the Nicaraguan government. And, and it basically comes down to, you know, it comes down to hypocrisy once again, the other thing that's um, that's that's interesting about what's happening in Washington is that the govern U.S. government has basically created one unified narrative voice, including Congress, the security apparatus, judiciary, and the executive branch. How is that not a soft coup? Uh, against the United States people? How is that not creating, you know, basically a one-party, one-state fascist government? You know, when Nicaragua responded as one unified uh, uh, organizational front, it was, you know, considered undemocratic and, um, and in violation of human rights. And yet in the United States, it's not labeled that at all. The other issue that is profoundly hypocritical and it and it dovetails right into um this theme of insurrection or coup is that um the united states has what's called the foreign agents registration act and when nicaragua implemented something similar after the 2019 coup which requires um foreign uh, organizations, um, NGOs, organizations returning, receiving foreign funds have to disclose how much money and from where it comes. Now, the United States looks at Nicaragua and says that that's un- undemocratic and in violation of human rights, free flow of money and all of that, and freedom of speech. And yet the United States, you know, has had the freedom uh, the Foreign Agents Registration Act since when, 1938 or something like that. So it really comes down to hypocrisy. And I know this is a theme that, you know, you and I, we've talked about over and over again. And, and it carries yet just another flagrant example of it. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about it is I think it's now more than just um uh, 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 well, I'll put it like this. The term I use now, uh, based on everything that's going on, is that there's a giant contradiction in the U.S. empire. And I think this article really uh, puts a uh, exclamation point on it because the, um, the January 6th discussion is arguing for stability. Right. It's arguing we should have stability and security to the max at home. Meanwhile, specifically 
in Nicaragua, the instability and the chaos is deliberately sowed by the United States by saying we're going to fund these regime change organizations and pretend that they're not regime change organizations. And to me, what's even worse, and this gets back to whatever you're saying, then through the media, the U.S. has to lie to the American people and say that's not what we're really doing because if the American people knew what their government was doing in Nicaragua, most of them would probably oppose it. Terry. Oh, I, I, I agree with you. And it's, you know, it's fascinating how, and again, it comes down to contradictions, hypocrisy, foreign meddling. This, what you just said about the U.S. financing these organizations, um, NGOs, different, oh, different uh, social and uh, groups within the country. This is why the Nicaraguan government wants the organizations operating inside Nicaragua to disclose if they're receiving foreign funds, how much, and from whom. This is exactly why they, they want to know that information so they can determine, you know, what the influence is and from whom. And, you know, a lot of those organizations are are legitimately funded, or I should say, are not funded by the U.S. government. There are many that are, and there should be nothing wrong with the Nicaraguan government wanting to to know where that money's coming. The United States demands it. And so why is it wrong for Nicaragua? It's wrong for Nicaragua because the United States has an interest in changing the Nicaraguan government. And not only, I think the question is not only why is it wrong for the Nicaraguan government to do it, but to Garland's point, and then also why is it wrong or why isn't it wrong for the United States to lie about the process in the narrative that they create in describing what was done? Because here they, they, they presented as these innocuous, innocent individuals were all just rounded up summarily and put in jail. They don't make mention of the fact that they were in violation of Nicaraguan law, which, by the way, is very similar to American law. But somehow organizations like APAC are able to skirt the law and inject themselves into the political process without any any repercussions. Well, you know, you have the United States. It's like we were talking about earlier that, you know, now there is like, like you mentioned, that this necessity or January 6th event has really created the circumstances for the United States to, under the guise of providing stability and security, now to have basically co-opted into one unified collective narrative, as we said before, between Congress, the security agencies, the judiciary, and the executive branch. They're all working now as one. Now, if the United the United States sees a foreign government co-opting all of those uh, branches of government and agencies, co-opting all of it into one narrative, into one power base, that would be considered a violation of human rights for a foreign government. And I agree with you. Why is it not a violation of you know, our human rights, our free speech, it's all been, you know, co-opted in the state, but it's wrong for a foreign government to do that. It's okay for the U.S., but it's not okay 
for Nicaragua or any other government that's in the crosshairs. Of the United States. Well, I think the good thing is that the, the, these top type of conversations are being had everywhere and people are kind of waking up, particular in Central and, and, and South America and the Caribbean. And it looks like from Colombia to, you know, next coming Brazil and other places that people there are waking up and learning how to, how to you know, take action and turn social movements into political victories. Terry. Oh, most definitely. And I, I think that, and that is one thing, and I know the three of us talk about this um, as, a, as a continuing theme, too, is the importance of social movements, labor movements, um, indigenous movements, all of these, this ground force of, un, of people united. And I think we can truly say this is what allowed for the change in government in Colombia. We, you know, we saw this in in Bolivia in uh, fall of 2020. We've seen this in um, in Chile to a certain degree, in Peru most certainly, and I will um, say watching events in Ecuador last week that are still continuing to this day, this is also part of what's happening in Ecuador, this unified, being led by the indigenous community, but it has unified social movements, labor, Students, artists, uh, campesinos, or the agricultural uh, movement as well to change economies, to change government. And sometimes you change the economy, the government changes. Sometimes you change the government in order to change the economy. But this is what um, has allowed, in my opinion, allowed for the change in government in Colombia. Don't forget they had their Foro Nacional a year ago. That was an uprising of about 72% of the, of the Colombian population against uh, the, the government that is now, the uh, Duque government that has now been voted um, out of office. And um, it, it really is, and I think Garland, I don't think we can underestimate and should never stop talking about the power and need for a groundswell unified movement among peoples. Terry Madsen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate uh, that analysis. We're so glad that you're safe. Please continue. We pray that you continue to be so. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Times of Israel reports is Israel, Arab allies agree to tighten cooperation ahead of Biden visit. Senior diplomats from Israel, the U.S. and regional Arab allies agreed to increase efforts to improve security, stability, and prosperity in the Middle East during a... Negev Summit follow-up meeting in Bahrain on Monday. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So they've agreed to increase efforts. 
How significant is this? Uh, how tangible is this? This sounds like I agree to try harder to make it easier for the world to be a better place. Yeah, of course. And and I mean, what more can they do? They are already, uh, you know, militarily aligned. They've already been in this alliance since the beginning of the uh, Zionist colony and the founding of these uh um, you know, more monarchies by the British uh, in the Gulf. And uh, there's nothing more they can do. I mean, like the propaganda is aligned, uh, their their finances and businesses are aligned. So it's just hyperbole and it's really uh, internal propaganda consumption because it's just trying to uh, speak to themselves to make themselves feel better. The reality is the limits of uh, the empire have been reached and we've already tested the limits of each of these components the gulf monarchies and the zionist colony uh, against their adversaries and their combined efforts are not going to be much better either it also seems to me that while they're you know making nice while president biden's there and they want to in somehow somehow stay in the good graces of uh, the us empire a number of these states are starting to look to the east. They're making deals. The Saudis are building some big refinery in China, and they've said they refuse to uh, go along with the sanctions on Russia. So the UAE, when you look at some of these countries, while Joe Biden's here and they're like, you know, showing their customary uh, um, deference, they're still looking in other directions when it com- comes to their own personal finances. It seems to me your thoughts. Oh, yeah, definitely. And of course, we we heard today the uh, G7 claiming that they will try to cap the prices of Russian uh, oil and gas. And in order to do so, they will have to control all the other sources of uh, fossil fuels. And as we we know it's uh, that's impossible because uh, all the states that are vessels of the U.S. that have oil and gas are pumping at the maximum, and the countries that are not part of the uh, American empire are sanctioned. When you're talking about uh, Venezuela and Iran, so any attempt to actually control the uh, the prices of oil and gas to punish uh, Russia. Well, uh, ultimately, if mean that they need to allow Iranian and Venezuelan oil and gas to enter the market, which is, and you know, supposedly other other uh, adversaries of the United States. So, whatever the U.S. does right now is just uh, going to benefit its adversaries. Israel, Egypt, and the EU gas deal is another green light to occupation and rights abuses. The European Union has just signed a tripartite gas deal with Egypt and Israel that will increase the EU's dependency on Israeli gas. It's described by the EU Commission Chief as a historic agreement. The deal proves that when it comes to respect for human rights and international law, the EU and its member states have no credibility. Your thoughts, Laith Maruf. Oh, yeah. And it shows also the desperation that the empire is reaching right now. Because as, as we I just noted just before, uh, you know, there is no extra supply to come from any of the vessels of the U.S. And uh, therefore, uh, the uh, gas and, and oil of Venezuela and, and, and Iran is the other option, which they don't want. So the final 
option is to loot the gas and oil of Lebanon and Palestine and divert it to Europe to uh, supply it. And that is a suicidal mission. You know, it's it's a clear a situation where that will lead to war. So that's uh, that tells you how desperate the United States is that is risking a whole regional war in Western Asia that could spill not only to, you know, uh, 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 you know, war inside the Zionist colony, but it could disrupt all the flow of oil and gas from all the vessels in the Gulf. Where are they now? I know Israel had said it was going to tow some platforms in there. I believe Hezbollah said that if they did, that those um, those uh, platforms would be, or those whatever they were going to use ships for for excavating the gas would be uh, subject to military attack. And um, I don't know what happened after that. What's the what's the latest update on where they are as far as that's concerned? So last week, the U.S. Uh, negotiator. Uh, was in Lebanon, and he left uh, back to D.C. to, I guess, negotiate with the real uh, people that are going to make a decision on this. But ultimately, uh, Hezbollah said they will sink this platform if it starts extracting. Up until now, it hasn't started extracting uh, the gas from the Qana field that straddles the um, international waters of both Lebanon and Palestine. And, you know, so... We're all holding our breath here in, in the region because, as as I said, you know, the U.S. is desperate to resupply Europe with gas and oil before the fall comes. And this is their last their last hope for that. And uh, it seems that the uh, empire <laughs> is being squeezed right now. And the person who has the ability to trigger the end of the empire is the resistance uh, in Lebanon, Hezbollah. In the next few weeks, we will be uh, seeing how these things unfold. Iran slams economic terrorism in annual review of U.S. rights situation. Iran has listed the U.S. government's violations in an annual report on rights, including its resort to economic terrorism, describing the country as the biggest violator of human rights. You know, I would think that a couple of years ago, a statement like this from Iran would not even have made Western press, but, and, and not that it not that it has today, but it seems as though it's taking, it's getting more traction now than it would have gotten, say, a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Like now, because the contradictions between what the United States says and does are even more apparent to most of humanity, because, uh, you know, it's not only their their words that are contradiction, their actions uh, outside the empire, but also their actions themselves are contradiction, you know, within what we saw in the last uh, few months in the war in Ukraine, um, how the West uh, unveiled its, uh, its, its white supremacist uh, self that it had hooded for a while under a <laughs> fake, not a KKK hood, but you know what I'm talking about. So 
we, you know, the, the rest of the world, uh, anybody who had any doubt or uh, was giving the, the West the benefit of the doubts in terms of talk of democracy and human rights, that's all gone. There's no more, any, you know, anybody that tries to defend the U.S. and the imperial order uh, is, is immediately with uh, visual evidence uh, contradicted. Um, and therefore, it's, it's becoming harder and harder for the uh, West to sell its uh, propaganda. I think the other part I have to ask you to comment on is the issue of competency, because you can look at them and you say they're they're contradicting their arguments and they're saying, you know, taking moral stances and then they're violating their own moral stances and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But when you look at what the you look at Joe Biden, you look at Bojo, you look at Olaf Schultz, you look at these people who are so frighteningly incompetent and you see the actions that they are taking that deliberately destroys their own economy, the argument that it's even a competent empire has gone out the window. Late. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, and you know, this is a symptom of the decay of the empire. It's not that the, the, the truly the empire cannot produce any uh, better quality uh, leadership at this moment because of this internal decay that is happening. Uh, a person who uh, could be of good quality to lead at this moment in in the West will have to acknowledge the end of 600 years of uh, European European hegemony over humanity and would uh, negotiate a multi, new multipolar world uh, with no wars. And, and regional uh, integration between um, like-minded uh, like uh, peoples. And that's, of course, you know, for is, is antithema for anything that we see in coming out of the political circles in the West, in the United States, and any of its uh, media of projecting of self. The projection, what the United States, the Americans cannot imagine themselves as equals to others. They can only imagine themselves as superior, and that's uh, where the problem lies. From the same article, the Islamic Republic of Iran emphasizes that U.S. unilateralism and imposition of unilateral economic sanctions with the aim of forcing governments to change their policies is a gross and systematic violation of human rights. This is from the Iranian ministry. That's a hard statement to argue with. I, it, for those listening to this show that might be of another political leaning, whatever that polit political leaning might be, that's a hard position to argue with when the United States government has seized money from the, the, the Russian Development Fund. They're seizing yachts from uh, so-called oligarchs all around. They're basically stealing people's boats and they're stealing government money in Afghanistan. They've seized the uh, sovereign, sovereign economic fund. So – when you're doing those kinds of things, you can't call yourself anything other than a pirate or a gangster. Uh, this is not democracy. This is not respecting sovereignty. This is not respecting democracy. Yeah, I mean, look, look uh, as you mentioned, Afghanistan, people are starving right now in Afghanistan. Children are dying on a daily basis. And, uh, and you know, uh, the Secretary of State of the United States, Blinken, sends out a tweet saying, oh, we're going to send 50 million dollars uh, in 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 food aid while they have looted the billions of dollars as you mentioned of the afghan 
foreign reserves. And so this is happening across the world. Uh, you know, what, what, what the United States did in Venezuela uh, with the sanctions and the tens of thousands of people that died, the uh, tens of thousands of people that died in Iran because the the lack of uh, cancer medications, the near near starvation collapse that is going to happen right now in Lebanon because of the looting of uh, Syria's wheat and and grains by the American occupation. This is uh, a global problem. The whole of humanity right now. If 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 Iran, if if uh, Russia has its foreign reserves looted by the West, it means nobody's foreign reserves are safe. Are safe and uh, we're all going to, to have to end our trade with the West. Laith Maroof, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate your flexibility today. I know that your schedule is packed and you were able to fit us in. We truly appreciate it, as always. We look forward to having you back. Thank you so much, guys. Have a nice evening. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece entitled G7 and the Desperation Stage of Russian Sanctions. Biden and the other G7 leaders are meeting in the Bavarian Alps this week. Apart from proclaiming they'll never give up supporting Zelensky and Ukraine, G7 leaders announced they were planning two new sanctions on Russia. What are these sanctions and what will their impacts be? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He holds a PhD in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. He is Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, Jack, welcome back. Always glad to join you. You write, like most of the previous six phases of sanctions, the purpose of the latest is to deprive Russia of revenues from exports. So far, sanctions haven't been all that successful in that regard, at least in the shorter term. What's going on, Jack? And now they want to ratchet all of this up. To what end? Well, you know, the whole purpose of uh, sanctions in general is to deny uh, revenue, deny currency to the country being sanctioned. And of course, uh, one way you did deny that currency uh, is to block their exports from which they earn currency. Uh, there's other ways, you know, you steal uh, the amount of uh, uh, currency and um, short-term uh, securities they may have in central banks and private banks. You know, we know that's going on. But the, the main thing is to try to stop uh, exports and therefore prevent Russia from earning uh, revenues and other currencies. Uh, and in general, that hasn't been very effective uh, because, uh, you know, Russia has continued to sell uh, oil elsewhere other than in Europe. In fact, it's still selling oil to Europe. You know, Europe's role uh, 
on sanctions as they're they're only going to cut off the oil imports from Russia uh, by December. They phase it in by December. It doesn't look like they're going to achieve that, but that's what that is. So they're still importing Russian oil. Of course, they're importing Russian gas. Um, of course, uh, even Russia has uh, reduced by a third the amount of gas that it's uh, uh, selling to Russia. I mean, selling to 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 Europe. Um, but now, uh, globally, you know, Russia's earning more er energy revenues than before uh, because the price uh, of oil is going through the roof and gas and energy and industrial metals that Russia um, exports. So if the objective is to prevent revenue obtaining from uh, exports, uh, it's not working uh, because uh, you add revenue by increasing the volume of what you sell, but you also add revenue by increasing the price. And uh, the sanctions are having the opposite effect. They're raising the price, uh, even though they're not really successfully reducing the volume of sales either, because Russia is selling elsewhere. So uh, the sanctions are in the short term. We don't know what this is going to be in the long term, but in the short term, we know they're pretty much a failure. Uh, and that's why... Uh, uh, the, the ruble is is uh, rising. In other words, if uh, if they were successful, the ruble would be falling. The ruble is a symptom of the fact uh, that they can't prevent the uh, revenues from uh, Russian exports. Now, what you got in Bavaria is a, a desperate move here, uh, new move by um, the G7 U.S. Uh, to try to reduce those energy revenues for Russia. How are they doing that? Well, one is they're going to uh, propose blocking, uh, banning uh, Russia's sales of its uh, gold reserves uh, and the London exchange. Uh, and uh, Russia makes about oh, $20 billion a year from the sale of gold. It's one of the world's biggest gold producers, maybe the biggest, I'm not sure. Uh, so they want to block that. But that's pretty damn silly uh, because – so, so you say London, uh, Russia can't sell its gold on the London exchange. Well, there's other exchanges in the world. <laughs> you know, Turkey buys a lot of gold. Uh, Qatar and India and other places buy gold. So just like Russia is selling its oil elsewhere, uh, it just sells its gold elsewhere. And to the extent that the Europeans want gold, uh, they won't be able to buy it in London uh, from Russia, they'll have to pay a higher price to buy it in Qatar or Turkey or someplace like that. And I, I think those other countries, those other gold exchanges, uh, will buy even more Russian gold and then resell it to the Europeans at even a higher markup price. Uh, you know, gold is very important, not just as a as a luxury good, but it's used in a lot of in, industrial uh, you know production as well. So uh, it's 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 a silly thing. They think that that they're the center of the global economy, Europe, right? And whatever they do in Europe, you know, the whole world's going to have to uh, uh, go along with it. Well, those days are over. Uh, that's not you know what's going to happen in this global economy. Uh, but it's kind of like an economic hubris <laughs> that uh, the Europeans and the U.S. think that whatever they do in Europe, uh, they can make happen everywhere else in the world. Uh, and the second uh, uh, proposal is, uh, um, you know, failure along those same lines. Uh, what the Europeans are saying is, uh, uh, well, let's put a deeply discounted price cap on uh, Russian oil sales around the world. Let's start with uh, with Europe. 
the G7, you know, and then maybe the rest of Europe, who knows, and agreed to buy Russian oil only at a deeply discounted price. Now, that discounted price is probably going to have to be like 50% off of uh, the global market price because Russia is already selling to India and elsewhere at a 30% discount. So, you know, presumably it's going to have to be even a deeper discount. Uh, so, but even if you get the Europeans to do that, to agree uh, to buy Russian oil, for six months now, because they're saying they're, they're going to cut it all off in six months, right? Uh, if you get them to agree to buy it at a 50% discount, uh, that will reduce Russian oil revenues and sales for the next six months into Europe. Now, that's pretty silly, right? Because when you, when you think of it, is Russia going to agree to that uh, when there's only six months left of the Europeans buying their oil anyway? You know, the idea, the logic in this proposal, which, by the way, is uh, originated with Janet Yellen. You know, she's the secretary of Treasury and she's she's the, the person who said uh, uh, four months ago that inflation is going to be temporary. So, you know, her her judgment is questionable here, I think. Um, but, you know, can can Europe really drive the supply price of oil globally? Can the Europeans say, and if we mess with demand for Euro for oil in Europe, the demand price of oil in Europe, uh, is that really going to translate into a global demand uh, price at a discounted level? I think the Russians is just going to say, okay, you guys are not going to buy any of our oil in six months anyway, so we'll just stop selling it to you now, right? <laughs> just as they're cutting the natural gas, they're selling by a third and warning they'll cut it by another third. Uh, it, it's a silly notion that thinks that uh, a region of the world can manipulate demand and the demand price for oil that will offset those forces determining the supply-driven price of global oil. Demand does not drive supplies, uh, supply and therefore price. It's the opposite that's going on. Uh, what these people are thinking economically is, is so uh, so juvenile. I mean, can't they figure out the consequences globally of these kind of moves? So it's a kind of desperate thing, I think, uh, uh, of, of both of these measures, uh, both trying to reduce the amount of revenue uh, that Russia obtains from oil and from gold because they haven't been able to do that so far. Two things, Dr. Jack. One thing we've learned from these sanctions that they apparently haven't learned. So they want to restrict gold. One thing we've learned from the sanctions is when you start to restrict any commodity, the value gets higher. So gold will be more expensive. Russia's been hoarding gold. They'll, the gold they have will be worth even more, number one. Number two, again, Oil is a world market commodity. You start trying to restrict the price, the cost of oil worldwide is going to go up. The Russians could simply say, you know what, we'll for a month, we'll stop selling any oil to anybody, which they wouldn't. They'd still sell the friendlier nations. But again, it's going to push the value of the price of oil is going to go up. But lastly, here's what I think. 
I personally don't see any way, even though they're saying in six months or whatever amount of time we're going to stop getting Russian oil, they have found no place to replace the Russian oil. The other companies, the countries are pretty much saying, yeah, we, we you know, we, we're, we're, we're kind of maxed out on who we're selling to. And they're um, refineries are set for the Russian crude type oil, which all of these refineries would have to be reset for another type of oil. So to me, this whole thing is going to fall apart within six months. Uh, let me put it like this. This winter, all of this foolishness, in my, in my opinion, just falls apart. What do you think, Dr. Ras uh, Dr. Rasmus? Yeah, well, you know, uh, you make a good point because you got to ask yourself, why are they pressing for a price cap and there was discounted oil if they're going to not need oil in six months anyway, you know? I mean, it suggests that they don't believe that they won't need Russian oil in six months. Why would they be going through this massive uh, attempt to regulate uh, the global price of oil uh, by with price caps if they thought that they weren't, they weren't going to need Russian oil and they had other oil to, to replace it in six months? I mean, Europe can't do anything in six months, right? <laughs> They're not even going to be able to implement this damn thing in six months or in three months or whatever. Uh, so I think you're right. I think it suggests that they know darn well uh, that they can't uh, get off of Russian oil uh, by by December, as they're saying saying they will. And by the way, uh, the same thing with natural gas, uh, you know, to even a greater magnitude. Uh, Two or three months ago, they were saying, well, you know, we'll need the 2027 to get off of Russian natural gas. Now they're saying 2030 before there's enough mm -hmm. gas mm -hmm. elsewhere to get off of it. You know, um, this this thing is a train wreck. Uh, <laughs> sanctions are a train wreck. They're not working. And to that point, one of the things that you said very early on in this discussion, you talked about revenues and that the sanctions were – uh, an effort to impact revenue. Would it be even more specific to say revenue in U.S. dollars? And what has backfired on the United States, as you touched on, is the ruble and the value of the ruble, because now that Russia has gone off of trading off the dollar and is either trading on the ruble or currency swaps between countries, the dollar, as far as Russia is concerned, and its trading partners has become less important. Uh, relatively, yes. Uh, but the dollar is still, you know, the big gorilla on, on, on the block. Oh, no question. Uh, no question. But that, that's why I said in terms, as, if, as far as Russia is concerned and its trading partners. Uh, the U.S. empire has controlled uh, the world in a number of ways. One is, of course, the U.S. dollar as the global trading uh, uh, currency. But uh, it uh, has also done that by having uh, heretofore um, all the buying and selling in uh, of, of oil in dollars, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And now that, mm -hmm. that monopoly is broken right? Uh, and it's continued to be broken, uh, which will – undermine the role of the U.S. dollar in the long run. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's what we're looking at, uh, you know, not in the short run, because what you got is rising U.S. interest rates very fast in the U.S., uh, which means investors around the world uh, want to buy treasuries right. and corporate bonds. So they go into uh, uh, money markets and they buy dollars and that drives up uh, uh, the value of the dollar, which is exacerbated by the fact that uh, Europe 
does not want to raise interest rates as fast as, as the U.S. We saw that this morning with the ECB and Lagarde's uh, statement. They're going very slow. They're only raising a quarter of a, of a percent here in July, right? Maybe another quarter in September. And the Japanese aren't raising anything at all. So you got this big gap. Okay. The other world currencies, the dollar is going to continue going up. So in the short run, the dollar is becoming stronger. But in the longer run, it's going to be undermined. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate your analysis. We look forward to having you back. Always glad to join you. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a piece in Antiwar.com entitled, NATO and a War Foretold. As NATO holds its summit in Madrid on June 28th through the 30th, the war in Ukraine is taking center stage. During a pre-summit June 22 talk with Politico, NATO's Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg bragged about how well-prepared NATO was for this fight because he said this was an invasion that was predicted foreseen by our intelligence services. What does all this really mean? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion of Iraq. And he's a co-author, along with Medea Benjamin, of this piece, Nick Davies. As always, Nick, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this whole idea that Stoltenberg would say that this was an invasion that was predicted, foreseen by our intelligence services, Nick, if that was true, that tells me also then if you knew it was coming, you probably could have prevented it. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's the whole point. And also, really, I mean, the point of the article is that, um, you know, Stoltenberg was just talking about, oh, well, yeah, like a couple of weeks before we predicted this was going to happen. You know, 30 years ago, people warned NATO that if they kept expand, if they expanded at all, or uh, let alone kept expanding right up to uh, to Russia's borders, that um, there was the you know the consequences were going to be catastrophic, and um, <clears throat> and so you know one has to think you know NATO is supposed to be a, an organization, a sort of mutual defense organization, as opposed to a hostile, aggressive military alliance, which is the way it behaves, um, and. You know, surely the, the the reason countries join NATO is to be secure, is to be protected, to be under the umbrella, including the nuclear umbrella of the United States. And um, and so, you know, what what how, how did NATO respond to these warnings? I mean, I mean, surely the you know, the. The, the idea is to prevent war. If you, if somebody warns you that, oh well, if you do this and that and then that, um, you're going to end up 
pissing off a major nuclear power and you could end up at war. And and the supposed purpose of your whole organization is to prevent that happening. Um, you know, then you might want to actually listen to some of the warnings. Well, the other thing, Nick, is, you know, it's getting just preposterous to even make the argument that NATO is a um, an independent organization. It's just an umbrella group for the U.S. to put the vassals together because we've gotten to a point where the um, European countries are doing taking actions at the behest of the U.S. empire that – clearly and demonstrably make them less safe, that they can, none of them can look at it right now and say, boy, it's a sure a good thing we overthrew the government of Ukraine and started, um, and, and started pumping it full of weapons on Russia's border because we wouldn't be as safe as we are now. It doesn't even make sense. And uh, let me add this. And now they want to surround China, too. So it's clear that NATO isn't even a real organization. It's just another tool for these crazy neocons in the U.S. empire to express their power. If you think back to when Macron met with Putin, I want to say it was March, and they they were sitting at that very long table, and Putin said to Macron, if you continue to back the United States play, I'm going to send a missile into Paris. And the expression on Macron's face was <laughs> I don't know if you remember seeing that. It was he was he was mortified by that thought. And uh, I just I just thought that fit into what Garland was just articulating Nick Davies cuz cuz France is not any safer now. Be, because of all of this foolishness. Go ahead, Nick. For sure. Uh, yeah. And I mean, the, um, <clears throat> the, you know, the, the, I, I, I mean, I guess you, you'd have to say one of the most extraordinary things about this whole situation is the way that somehow um, the United States has got all these European countries to act in a way that I mean, apart from making themselves less safe, they are making themselves poorer. They are absolutely putting the squeeze to their own people in terms of the prices they have to pay for energy or even the whether they can whether they will be able to get gas to to cook and to heat their homes next winter. Um, and, um, you know, but this is kind of the function that NATO has has performed all along is to is to tie all these European countries who are you know really economically powerful enough to be independent for God's sake, um, and um, and yet they they are tied into U.S. foreign policy, U.S. wars, U.S. militarism, buying U.S. weapons, and and this has been going on. Since I think it was 1948 or 49 when this this military alliance was formed, and in fact the first um, the first Secretary General of uh, NATO, a, a British guy, a, a peer of the realm, Lord Ismay, um, <laughs> where he he said when asked what the purpose of NATO was, he said it's to keep the Americans in, the Russians out and the Germans down. And 
I mean, here we are. The Cold War finished 30 years ago, supposedly. And, um, uh, and yet NATO is still fulfilling that same function, you know, by tying countries like Germany and France. I mean, France is a nuclear weapons power. Germany is, uh, you know, the, 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 the most powerful economy in Europe. And, and yet, through NATO, they are tied down as, as, as poodles of the United States. And when, and when they step out of line, um, you, you know, the, the, the U.S. and some of the other more aggressive countries, the U.K., for instance, you know, kind of whip them back into line. And yeah, I, so, so, I mean, and NATO, meanwhile, holds these summits like this one this week. And all they do is congratulate themselves and congratulate each other. They've called themselves the most successful military alliance in history. Well, if you're talking about destroying Yugoslavia, destroying Afghanistan, and destroying Libya, and you, and if you accept that that is what a military alliance is designed to do, well, I mean, those are three sort of relatively minor countries on the world stage. I mean, um, you know, compared to the alliance between the Soviet Union and uh, the U.S. and the U.K., which actually destroyed Germany um, and Italy, for that matter, and Japan, um, you know, I, you know what... You know, the, the entire narrative of NATO is, is just ahistorical, and, they, and yet these leaders really seem blinded by their own, in their own little hall of mirrors, congratulating each other on how wonderful they are as they, you know, as they, they, they stumble into World War Three. They sit in there, as I, we talked about a little earlier, they sit in their echo chamber and, and they talk to themselves. Stoltenberg was talking about Western intelligence predictions in the months leading up to the February 20, 24th intervention. And I was saying leading up to that, that I, I did not see that Russia was going to intervene. And the primary reason for me saying that was I didn't think when, pres when the presidents Putin and Biden met in Geneva and Putin said, I'm sending you my demands in writing, and I expect your response in writing, I did not think the United States would be as reckless as it wound up being and basically ignoring what Putin had sent. And that is what I saw to be the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, they really just threw it back in his face. I mean, he, this, is, this is what Putin has been consistent since 2007. He has been speaking to his, as he called them, his partners in the West, saying that they were on a collision course and that, um, you know, they needed a new security framework for Europe and for the world that would actually include Russia and China. And um, when he started saying that in 2007, you know, Western leaders just kind of laughed. Uh, and um, but he has, you know, he has he has continued to say that and he has continued to back that up. 
He didn't let them overthrow his ally Bashar al-Assad in Syria. He moved militarily to prevent that. And um, much as, you know, uh, we deplore uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the destruction, I mean, NATO and the United States behaved in every in every single respect um, in a way to to provoke precisely that outcome, starting as as we said in the article from nine, 1990 when they they made a bunch of false promises to the Russians that they were not going to expand NATO, not one inch past the border of Germany is what Secretary of State Baker told Gorbachev. And and then it went on and on. And and at every stage, the U.S. was warned. When they first, as the 2008 NATO summit approached, uh, William Burns, who's now the director of the CIA, and at that time was the U.S. ambassador to Moscow, he said, Ukrainian, this is in a memo to Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just Putin, he said. He wrote in more than two and a half years of conversations with key Russian players, from knuckle-draggers in the dark recesses of the Kremlin to Putin's sharpest liberal critics, I have yet to find anyone who views Ukraine and NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interests. If I may add something to throw this to you, and what we see in the world is the recently the the person from the uh, the leader of the African Union was in Moscow, and basically what he said is. We blame the United States for this. We blame the U.S. We blame the West for this. If you t- uh, look at what's Maduro, if you look at what people in the South are saying, in the global South, in the brown and red and yellow world are all saying, we blame the U.S. for this. The U.S. has been going around the world doing and, and their empire have been doing things for centuries, horrible things. They came up to the border. They wouldn't back off. And so the other, if you could, uh, um, well, we got about a minute. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, India is in, importing more Russian oil than ever now. Um, you know, they're not going to cut off their nose despite their face to to join in this revived Cold War. No, you know, there's, there's virtually no countries in the global south. Uh, want any part of this. I mean, you know, the, the, the U.S. has its couple of allies like Japan and South Korea, but, you know, no other countries have joined in with these Western sanctions. It's, it's, it's the EU and it's the United States and Canada and, um, yeah, and Japan. But, um, but the rest of the world wants no part of this. They see no reason. Why should, why should they take sides in, in, you know, what could turn into World War Three? They, 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 you know, they have their own problems, for God's sake, you know, and now this has just made, made them all worse. The, the amount of food mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. normally exported by Russia and Ukraine, basic food, staples, wheat, corn, but barley, you know, cooking oil. Nicholas Davies, as always, thank you so much for your time. We look forward to having you back. I look forward to it. Thank you.
Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is a piece in Common Dreams that originated in Shearpost entitled The Rise of American Fascism. Supreme Court rulings, including the overturning of Roe v. Wade, herald the ascendancy of Christian fascism in the United States. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who was a foreign correspondent for 15 years for the New York Times, where he served as the Middle East Bureau Chief and the Balkan Bureau Chief for the paper. He is the host of the Emmy Award-nominated RT America show On Contact. His most recent book is America, The Farewell Tour, and he's the author of this piece. Chris Hedges, as always, Chris, welcome back. Sure, just one quick correction. RT is off. So uh, uh, that show... Oh, former host. (laughs) Former host. I'm sorry. (laughs) Thank you. You are correct. Former host. Yeah, my latest book is Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in American Prison. Thank you. The First Amendment reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. You write that the Supreme Court is relentlessly funding and empowering Christian fascism. How so? Well, through a series of rulings, we can start with Roe v. Wade, which ended a constitutional right to abortion. Uh, A June 21st ruling that um, the state of Maine cannot exclude religious schools from a state tuition program. And it had earlier ruled that a Montana state program to support private school had to include religious schools. It ruled that a 40-foot cross could remain on state property in the state of Maryland. Uh, It upheld the Trump administration regulation, allowing employers to deny birth control coverage to female employees on religious grounds. Uh, It ruled that employment discrimination discrimination laws do not apply to teachers at religious schools. It ruled that a Catholic social service, service agency in Philadelphia could ignore city rules and refuse to screen same sex couple same sex couples applying to take uh, in foster children. It uh, neutered the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, it has carried out an assault against workers, uh, watering down laws, allowing workers to combat sexual and racial harassment, reversing it reversed the century-old campaign finance restrictions under Citizens United to allow oligarchs and corporations and private groups to pump dark money into the elections. It permitted states to opt out of the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion, undercut the ability of public sector unions to raise money. I mean, on and on and on. It's a court with a very clear ideological agenda, uh, including a recent ruling that uh, you cannot sue police who don't read you your Miranda rights and then use your statements against you in court. Uh, So this is an extremely ideological court that is pushing through the agenda embraced by the Christian right. 
You know, um, Chris, I think there's something that's far worse on the horizon. I don't have to tell you this, but and that is that the Democrats refuse to do anything to help the working class, which means they will cede complete power to the Republicans. So the Republicans by 2024 with this extremely ideological um, court may and will likely have both houses and the presidency and this court. And I mean, uh, to me, when I look at it, I say, I know who the Republicans are, and they always would do this. But the fact that the Democrats won't do anything or keep any of their promises to get people to support them, just, I mean, they are, they are to a large level complicit in this. Am I wrong? Well, completely. I mean, you look at, in particular at the Clinton administration, it was a frontal assault against the working class. Uh, they, for 20 years, they could have codified uh, the Roe v. Wade into law, and they didn't because they raised money on it. They used it as an election issue uh, against the Republicans. Uh, and, and I mean, the problem is, of course, that they are just uh, funded by the same corporate entities and oligarchs uh, that fund the Republican Party. These are largely cultural issues. But the Democrats, I think, have uh, more than uh, given evidence that they have no intention of carrying out real reform. I mean, even the most tepid campaign promises made by Biden, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour for giving a student debt, none of it's been done and none of it will be done. His, his Build Back Better plan is uh, has been gutted. I mean, they won't even talk about it anymore. So, yes, of course, they, they are fertilizing the ground for what I would call this Christian fascism, and they have been fertilizing the ground for this Christian fascism for a long time. So they are as culpable uh, as, uh, you know, those who are actually carrying out uh, this ideological assault against what is left of our extremely anemic democracy. And I would say that uh, it all looks certainly that in the midterms, they will read the Republican. It's not the establishment Republican Party. It should be clear. I mean, the establishment Republicans, the Mitt Romneys, the Bushes, the Liz Cheneys, they've all now grafted themselves to the Democratic Party uh, and become one entity fighting this cult-like uh, party uh, centered around Trump. Talk about your term Christian fascism. I would think a lot of people either reading your piece or listening to this conversation, they understand that the Christian element of it. It's the fascism part where uh, I think a lot of people understand fascism to be uh, state control of the economy and of society and to a great degree using uh, for, for basically for, for, the, for the profit of the elite and using the military to enforce its, its agenda. If you could explain the Christian fascism of this. Right. Well, first, I come out of the church. My father was a minister. I uh, have a Master of Divinity from Harvard Divinity School. I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister, so I'm biblically literate. I'm probably more attuned uh, than people who don't have that background to how they have twisted, manipulated uh, the Bible uh, to support this ideology. But more importantly, I spent two years reporting from megachurches, creationist seminars, Right to Life retreats, uh, the Christian Broadcasting Networks, I conducted hundreds of hours of interviews with members of the Christian right and leaders of the Christian right for my book, American Fascist, the Christian Right and the War on America. Uh, and before I published that book, 
uh, because I was wary about using the word fascist. I met with Fritz Stern uh, and Robert Paxton. These are probably two of the country's most eminent scholars in fascism to make sure that the word was warranted. Uh, and I would just make one correction that, uh, you know, Stalinist communism uh, ran state capitalism, but fascists build an alliance with the business class. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes an easy alliance. What they do on behalf of the business class is control workers. So as soon as the Nazis came into power in January of 33, they declared May Day a workers' holiday, and then they outlawed labor unions. Uh, so uh, fascism always makes an alliance with uh, capitalist forces in mm-hmm. a way mm-hmm. that Stalinist communism will actually run it. Uh, and one of the things I'd like to ask you about, you've and I've heard you do this before, you make a lot of comparisons with Weimar Germany and what's going on now. If you could explain that. Well, sure. I mean, Weimar, uh, of course, the force that propelled fascists into power was the 1929 Wall Street crash. Uh, and then you had hyperinflation in Weimar. So in 1928, the Nazis were pulling, I think, at 2.7 percent in the single digits. Uh, uh, by 1932, they were getting 37 percent. And that was, those were the last three elections in Germany. Uh, and so the inability on the part of the ruling elite in Weimar, because they were they they used all of their state resources to pop, pay off the exorbitant loans that they took uh, and it actually canceled unemployment insurance. I think unemployment at the highest point of Weimar reached close to 30 percent. Uh, so this just enraged uh, working the working class and saw them embrace either fascism or communism. That's the difference. The communist movement in Germany was quite strong, largely urban. The fascist movement was largely rural. Uh, there are differences, you know, the losses of World War I, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, but, but I think Mark Twain said history doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it rhymes. Uh, and I, I would also draw parallels to Yugoslavia. That was a conflict I covered where you saw the economic collapse of Yugoslavia vomit up these buffoonish figures like Radovan Karadzic and Slobodan Milosevic in the same way that Weimar vomited up the Nazis or we vomited up people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Donald Trump and all the others. Uh, That's what happens in a uh, dysfunctional, decayed society. Uh, And uh, and again, as you correctly point out, the Democrats are very culpable in uh, essentially creating the groundwork for this to be possible. The court held yesterday or announced the holding yesterday on the football coach claiming the right to pray on the 50-yard line after a game. And writing for the majority, Gorsuch said that the school relied exclusively and improperly on concerns that the prayers would be viewed as a religious endorsement by the school without evidence that students had been coerced. Barring the coach from praying at the end of the game was a form of hostility to religion in violation of the Constitution. I don't think you have to be a constitutional scholar to f- determine that Neil Gorsuch must not have gone, must not have taken constitutional law when he was in law school. Well, this is this is how they operate. They they revoke constitutional rights by judicial fiat. So if you look at Citizens United, the ability to pump dark money, unlimited dark money, into the campaign into what's become our system of legalized bribery 
is defended as a form of free speech and the right to petition the government. So they they twist, deform, and manipulate the Constitution uh, to essentially revoke uh, constitutional guarantees, and this is just another example of that. And, and I'm glad you pointed forward because I've been saying since this happened, you ain't seen nothing yet. And that's what I read in your in your uh, article that you, there's a whole lot to come, and it's from this Supreme Court and from our right wing Congress, and it's not going to be pretty. We got about uh, two minutes. No, I mean you know, and again, I I think my book kind of laid it out as to how the movement built. Uh, fascist movements uh, create two, they, they create kind of parallel organizations, uh, media organizations, uh, paramilitary groups, uh, universities, etc. And then the first thing they do is attempt to seize control of the judiciary and the internal organs of security. Uh, but their goals are, are very, uh, you know, they're not hidden. Uh, they, they want to abolish the Department of uh, education. Uh, they wanted to form the law, which they're already doing, including electoral law, uh, to uh, serve their ends because they're not a majority. Fascist movements are never a majority. Uh, they uh, want the Ten Commandments to form the basis of the legal system. They want to teach creationism and intelligent design in school. Uh, they want to attack social deviance, including the LGBT community, immigrants. You know, we just had these pastors in Idaho and Texas call for the uh, murder of uh, homosexuals. Uh, so uh, th- that's the agenda. And if they have a lock on the judiciary, a lock on Congress, and a lock on the executive branch, they're going to be able to push through um, this very frightening agenda, which I would call Christian fascism. Chris Hedges, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 